The rank clambered awkwardly across the damp rooftops as the morning mist was boiled off by the sun. Not that there would be any clear air today. Sticky swathes of smoke and stale steam wreathed the city and filled the air with the sad smell of dampened cinders. "'What is this place?' said Carrot, helping the others along a greasy walkway. Sergeant Colon looked around at the forest of chimneys. "'We're just above Jimkin Bearhugger's whisky distillery,' he said, "'on a direct line sea between the palace and the plaza. "'It's bound to fly over here.' Nobby looked wistfully over the side of the building. "'I've been in there once,' he said. "'Checked the door one dark night, and it just came open in me hand.' "'Eventually, I expect,' said Colon sourly. "'Well, I had to go in, didn't I, to check there was no miscreanting going on. "'Amazing place in there, all pipes and stuff, and the smell. "'Every bottle matured for up to seven minutes,' quoted Colon. "'Have a drop before you go,' it says on the label. "'Damn right, too.' I had a drop once, and I went all day. He knelt down and unwrapped the long sacking passage he had been manhandling with extreme difficulty during the climb. This revealed a long bow of ancient design and a quiver of arrows. He picked up the bow slowly, reverentially, and ran his pudgy fingers along it. You know, he said quietly, I was damn good with this when I were a lad. The captain should have let me have a go with it the other night. You keep on telling us, said Nobby unsympathetically. Well, I used to win prizes. The sergeant unwound a new bowstring, looped it around one end of the bow, stood up, pressed down, grunted a bit. Er, uh, Carrot, he said, slightly out of breath. Yes, Sarge? You any good at stringing bows? Carrot grasped the bow, compressed it easily, and slipped the other end of the string into place. That's a good start, Sarge, said Nobby. Don't you be sarcastic with me, Nobby. It ain't strength, it's keenness of eye and steadiness of hand that counts. Now you pass me an arrow. Not that one. Nobby's fingers froze in the act of grasping a shaft. That's my lucky arrow, spluttered Colon. None of you is to touch my lucky arrow. Looks just like any other bloody arrow to me, Sarge, said Nobby, mildly. That's the one I shall use for the actual what's her name, the coup de grace, said Colon. Never let me down, my lucky arrow didn't. Hit whatever I shot at. Hardly even had to aim. If that dragon's got any vulnerables, that arrow will find him. He selected an identical-looking but presumably less lucky arrow and knocked it. Then he looked around the rooftops with a speculative eye. Better get my hand in, he muttered. Of course, once you learn, you never forget. It's like riding a... Uh, riding... Uh, riding something you never forget being able to ride. He pulled the bowstring back to his ear and grunted. Right, he wheezed, as his arm trembled with the tension like a branch in a gale. See the roof of the Assassin's Guild over there? They peered through the air. Right then, said Colon, and you see the weather vane on it? Do you see it? Carrot glanced at the arrowhead. It was weaving back and forth in a series of figure eights. It's a long way off, Sarge, said Nobby, doubtfully. Never you mind me, you keep an eye on the weather vane groaned the sergeant. They nodded. The weather vane was in the shape of a creeping man with a big cloak. His outstretched dagger was always turned to stab the wind. At this distance, though, it was tiny. Okay, panted Colon. Now, do you see the man's eye? Oh, come on, said Nobby. Shut up, shut up, shut up, groaned Colon. Do you see it, I said. I think I can see it, Sarge, said Carrot loyally. Right, right, said the sergeant, swaying backwards and forwards with effort. Right, good lad, okay. Now, keep an eye on it, all right? He grunted and loosed the arrow. Several things happened so fast that they will have to be recounted in stop-motion prose. Probably the first was the bowstring slapping into the soft inner part of Colon's wrist, causing him to scream and drop the bow. This had no effect on the path of the arrow, which was already flying straight and true towards a gargoyle on the rooftop just across the road. It hit it on the ear, bounced, ricocheted off a wall six feet away, and headed back towards Colon, apparently at a slightly increased speed, going past his ear with a silky humming noise. It vanished in the direction of the city walls. After a while, Nobby coughed and gave Carrot a look of innocent inquiry. About how big, he said, is a dragon's vulnerables, roughly? Oh, it can be a tiny spot said Carrot, helpfully. I was sort of afraid of that, said Nobby. 
he wandered to the edge of the roof and pointed downwards. "'There's a pond just there,' he said. "'They use it for cooling water in the stills. "'I reckon it's pretty deep, so after the sergeant has shot at the dragon, "'we can jump in it. What do you say?' "'Oh, but we don't need to do that,' said Carrot, "'because the sergeant's lucky arrow would hit the spot, "'and the dragon'll be dead, so we won't have anything to worry about.' "'Granted, granted,' said Nobby hurriedly, "'looking at Colon's scowling face. "'But uh, just in case, you know, if by a million-to-one chance he misses, "'I'm not saying he will, mark you. "'You just have to think of all the uh, eventualities. "'If by incredible bad luck,' He doesn't quite manage to hit the vulnerable dead-on. Then your dragon is going to lose his rag, right? And it's probably a good idea to not be here. It's a long shot, I know. Call me a worrywart if you like. That's all I'm saying. Sergeant Colon adjusted his armour haughtily. When you really need them the most, he said, million-to-one chances always crop up. Well-known fact. The sergeant is right, Nobby, said Carrot, virtuously. You know that when there's just one chance which might just work, well, it works. Otherwise, there'd be no... He lowered his voice. I mean, it stands to reason. If last desperate chances didn't work, there'd be no... Well, the gods wouldn't let it be any other way. They wouldn't. As one man, the three of them turned and looked through the murky air towards the hub of the Discworld, thousands of miles away. Now the air was grey with old smoke and mist shreds, but on a clear day it was possible to see Corrie Celeste, home of the gods, sight of the home of the gods anyway. They lived in Dunmanifestin, the stuccoed Valhalla, where the gods faced eternity with the kind of minds that were at a loss to know what to do to pass a wet afternoon. They played games with the fates of men, it was said. Exactly what game they thought they were playing at the moment was anyone's guess. But of course there were rules. Everyone knew there were rules. They just had to hope like hell that the gods knew the rules too. It's got to work, mumbled Colon. I'll be using my lucky arrow and all. You're right. Last hopeless chances have got to work. Nothing makes any sense otherwise. You might as well not be alive. Nobby looked down at the pond again. After a moment's hesitation, Colon joined him. They had the speculative faces of men who have seen many things and knew that while you could of course depend on heroes and kings and ultimately on gods, you could really depend on gravity and deep water. Not that we'll need it, said Colon, virtuously. Not with your lucky arrow, said Nobby. That's right, but just out of interest, how far down is it, do you think, said Colon? About thirty feet, I'd say, give or take. Thirty feet. Colon nodded slowly. That's what I'd reckon. And it's deep, is it? Very deep, I've heard. I'll take your word for it. It looks pretty mucky. I'd hate to have to jump in it. Carrot slapped him cheerfully on the back, nearly pushing him over, and said, What's up, Sarge? Do you want to live forever? Dunno. Ask me again in five hundred years. It's a good job we've got your lucky arrow, then, said Carrot. Hmm? said Colon, who seemed to be in a miserable daydream world of his own. I mean, it's a good job we've got a last desperate million-to-one chance to rely on, or we'd really be in trouble. Oh, yes, said Nobby sadly. Lucky old us. The patrician lay back. A couple of rats dragged a cushion under his head. Things are rather bad outside, I gather, he said. Yes said Vimes bitterly. You're right. You're the safest bad in the city. He wedged another knife in a crack in the stones and tested his weight carefully, while Lord Vetinari looked on with interest. He'd managed to get six feet off the floor and up to a level with the grill. Now he started to hack at the mortar around the bars. The patrician watched him for a while and then took a book off the little shelf beside him. Since the rats couldn't read, the library he'd been able to assemble was a little baroque, but he was not a man to ignore fresh knowledge. He found his bookmark in the passages of lace-making through the ages and read a few pages. After a while, he found it necessary to brush a few crumbs of mortar off the book and looked up. "'Are you achieving success?' he inquired politely. Vimes gritted his teeth and hacked away. Outside the little grill was a grubby courtyard barely lighter than the cell. There was a midden in one corner, but currently it looked very attractive. More attractive than the dungeon, at any rate.' 
an honest midden was preferable to the way Ankh Morpork was going these days. It was probably allegorical or something. He stabbed, stabbed, stabbed. The knife blade twanged and shook in his hand. The librarian scratched his armpits thoughtfully. He was facing problems of his own. He had come here full of rage against book thieves, and that rage still burned. But the seditious thought had occurred to him that, although crimes against books were the worst kind of crimes, revenge ought, perhaps, to be postponed. It occurred to him that while, of course, what humans chose to do to one another was all one to him, there were certain activities that should be curtailed in case the perpetrators got overconfident and started doing things like that to books too. The librarian stared at his badge again and gave it a gentle nibble in the optimistic hope that it had become edible. No doubt about it, he had a duty to the captain. The captain had always been kind to him, and the captain had a badge too. Yes, there were times when an ape had to do what a man had to do. The orangutan threw a complex salute and swung away into the darkness. The sun rose higher, rolling through the mists and stale smoke like a lost balloon. The rank sat in the shade of a chimney stack, waiting and killing time in their various ways. Nobby was thoughtfully probing the contents of a nostril, Carrot was writing a letter home, and Sergeant Colon was worrying. After a while he shifted his weight uneasily and said, "'I've thought of a problem.' "'What's that, Sarge?' said Carrot. Sergeant Colon looked wretched. "'Well, what if it's not a million to one chance?' he said. Nobby stared at him. "'What do you mean?' he said. "'Well, all right. Last desperate million-to-one chances always work, right? No problem. But, well, it's pretty, what's the name, specific. I mean, isn't it?' "'You tell me,' said Nobby. "'What if it's just a, a thousand-to-one chance?' said Colon, agonizedly. "'What?' "'Anyone ever heard of a thousand-to-one shot coming up?' Carrot looked up. "'Don't be daft, Sergeant,' he said. "'No one ever saw a thousand-to-one chance come up. "'The odds against it are,' his lips moved, "'millions to one.' "'Yeah, millions,' agreed Nobby. "'So would it only work if it's your actual million-to-one chance?' said the Sergeant. "'I suppose that's right,' said Nobby. "'So nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred forty-three to one, for example,' Colon began. Carrot shook his head. "'Wouldn't have a hope.' No one ever said it's a 999,943 to one chance, but it might just work. They stared out across the city in the silence of ferocious mental calculation. We could have a real problem here, said Colon eventually. Carrot started to scribble furiously. When questioned, he explained at length about how you found the surface area of a dragon and then tried to estimate the chances of an arrow hitting any one spot. Aimed, mind, said Sergeant Colon. I aim. Nobby coughed. In that case, it's got to be a lot less than a million to one chance, said Carrot. It could be a hundred to one. If the dragon's flying slowly and it's a big spot, it could be practically a certainty. Colon's lips shaped themselves around the phrase. It's a certainty, but it might just work, he shook his head. Nah, he said. So what we've got to do then, said Nobby slowly, is adjust the odds. Now there was a shallow hole in the mortar near the middle bar. It wasn't much, Vimes knew, but it was a start. You don't require assistance by any chance, said the patrician. No, as you wish. The mortar was half-rotted, but the bars had been driven deep into the rock. Under their crusting of rust, there was still plenty of iron. It was a long job, but it was something to do and required a blessed absence of thought. They couldn't take it away from him. It was a good, clean challenge. You knew if you went on chipping away, you'd win through eventually. It was the eventually that was the problem. Eventually, great Artuin would reach the end of the universe. Eventually, the stars would go out. Eventually, Nobby might have a bath, although that would probably involve a radical rethinking of the nature of time. He hacked at the mortar anyway, and then stopped as something small and pale fell down outside quite slowly. Peanut shell, he said. The librarian's face 
surrounded by the inner tube jowls of the librarian's head, appeared upside down in the barred opening and gave him a grin that wasn't any less terrible for being the wrong way up. Ook! The orangutan flopped down off the wall, grabbed a couple of bars and pulled. Muscles shunted back and forward across its barrel chest in a complex pavan of effort. The mouthful of yellow teeth gaped in silent concentration. There were a couple of dull thungs as the bars gave up and broke free. The ape flung them aside and reached into the gaping hole. Then the longest arms of the law grabbed the astonished Vimes under his shoulders and pulled him through in one movement. The rank surveyed their handiwork. Right, said Nobby. Now, what are the chances of a man standing on one leg with his hat on backwards and a handkerchief in his mouth hitting a dragon's vulnerables? said Colon. It's pretty long odds, said Carrot. I reckon the hanky is a bit over the top, though. Colon spat it out. Make up your minds, he said. Me leg's gone asleep. Vimes picked himself up off the greasy cobbles and stared at the librarian. He was experiencing something which had come as a shock to many people, usually in much more unpleasant circumstances, such as a brawl started in the mended drum when the ape wanted a bit of peace and quiet to enjoy a reflective pint, which was this. The librarian might look like a stuffed rubber sack, but what it was stuffed with was muscle. That was amazing, was all he could find to say. He looked down at the twisted bars and felt his mind darken. He grabbed the bent metal. You don't happen to know where wants is, do you? he added. Look! The librarian thrust a tattered piece of parchment under his nose. Eek! Vimes read the word. It hath pleased, whereas at the stroke of noon a maiden pure yet high-born, compact between ruler and ruled. In my city, he growled, in my bloody city. He grabbed the librarian by two handfuls of chest hair and pulled him up to eye height. What time is it? he shouted. Ooh. A long red-haired arm unfolded itself upwards. Vimes's gaze followed the pointing finger. The sun definitely had the look of a heavenly body that was nearly at the crest of its orbit and looking forward to a long, lazy coasting towards the blankets of dusk. I'm not bloody well going to have it, understand? Vimes shouted, shaking the ape back and forth. Wook, the librarian pointed out patiently. What? Oh, sorry. Vimes lowered the ape, who wisely didn't make an issue of it, because a man angry enough to lift 300 pounds of orangutan without noticing is a man with too much on his mind. Now he was staring around the courtyard. Any way out of here, he said, without climbing the walls, I mean. He didn't wait for an answer, but loped around the walls until he reached a narrow, grubby door and kicked it open. It hadn't been locked anyway, but he kicked it just the same. The librarian trailed along behind, swinging on his knuckles. The kitchen on the other side of the door was almost deserted, the staff having finally lost their nerve and decided that all prudent chefs refrained from working in an establishment where there was a mouth bigger than they were. A couple of palace guards were eating a cold lunch. Now, said Vimes as they half rose, I don't want to have to... They didn't seem to want to listen. One of them reached for a crossbow. Oh, the hell with it. Vimes grabbed a butcher's knife from a block beside it and threw it. There is an art in throwing knives, and even then you need the right kind of knife. Otherwise it does just what this one did, which is miss completely. The guard with the bow leaned sideways, righted himself, and found that a purple fingernail was gently blocking the firing mechanism. He looked around. The librarian hit him right on the top of his helmet. The other guard shrank back, waving his hands frantically. No, 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 he said. It's a misunderstanding. What was it you said you didn't want to have to do? Nice monkey. Oh, dear, said Vimes. Wrong. He ignored the terrified screaming and rummaged through the debris of the kitchen until he came up with a cleaver. He'd never felt really at home with swords, but a cleaver was a different matter. A cleaver had weight. It had purpose. A sword might have a certain nobility about it, unless it was the one belonging, for example, to Nobby, which relied on rust to hold it together. But what a cleaver had was a tremendous ability to cut things up. He left the biology lesson, that no monkey was capable of bouncing someone up and down by their ankles, found a likely door and hurried through it. This took him outside again into the big cobbled area that surrounded the palace. 
Now he could get his bearings. Now he could... There was a boom in the air above him. A gale blew downwards, knocking him over. The king of Ankh-Morpork, wings outspread, glided across the sky and settled for a moment on the palace gateway, talons gouging long scars in the stone as it caught its balance. The sun glittered off its arched back as it stretched its neck, roared a lazy billow of flames and sprang into the air again. Vimes made an animal, a mammalian animal noise, in the back of his throat and ran out into the empty streets. Silence filled the ancestral home of the Ramkins. The front door swung back and forth on its hinges, letting in the common, badly brought-up breeze which wandered through the deserted rooms, gawping and looking for dust on the top of the furniture. It wound up the stairs and banged through the door of Sybil Ramkin's bedroom, rattling the bottles on the dressing table and riffling through the pages of Diseases of the Dragon. A really fast reader could have learned the symptoms of everything from abated heels to zigzag throat and down in the low, warmed and foul-smelling shed that housed the swamp dragons. It seemed that Errol had got them all. Now he sat in the centre of his pen, swaying and moaning softly. White smoke rolled slowly from his ears and drifted towards the floor. From somewhere inside his swollen stomach came complex explosive hydraulic noises, as though desperate teams of gnomes were trying to drive a culvert through a cliff in a thunderstorm. His nostrils flared, turning more or less of their own volition. The other dragons craned over the pen walls, watching him cautiously. There was another distant, gastric roar. Errol shifted painfully. The dragons exchanged glances, then one by one they lay down carefully on the floor and put their paws over their eyes. Nobby put his head on one side. It looks promising, he said critically. We might be nearly there. I reckon the chances of a man with soot on his face, his tongue sticking out, standing on one leg and singing the hedgehog song, ever hitting a dragon's vulnerables, would be... What you say, Carrot? A million to one, I reckon, said Carrot virtuously. Colon glared at them. Listen, lads, he said, you're not waning me up, are you? Carrot looked down at the plaza below them. Oh, bloody hell, he said softly. What's that? said Colon, urgently looking around. They're chaining a woman to a rock. The rank stared over the parapet. The huge and silent crowd that lined the plaza stared too at a white figure struggling between half a dozen palace guards. Wonder where they got the rock from, said Colon. We're on loam here, you know. Fine strapping wench, whoever she is, said Nobby approvingly, as one of the guards wheeled off, bow-legged, and collapsed. That's one lad who won't know what to do with his evenings for a few weeks. Got a mean right knee, so she has. Anyone we know, said Colon. Carrot squinted. It's Lady Ramkin, he said, his mouth dropping open. Never. He's right. In a nighty, said Nobby. The buggers. Colon snatched up his bow and fumbled for an arrow. I'll give him vulnerables. Well-spoken lady like her, it's a disgrace. Er, uh, said Carrot, who had glanced over his shoulder. Sergeant? This is what it comes to, muttered Colon. Decent women can't walk down the street without being eaten. Right, you bastards. You're... you're geography. Sergeant, Carrot repeated urgently. It's history, not geography, said Nobby. That's what you're supposed to say. History. Your history, you say. Well, whatever, snapped Colon. Let's see how... Sergeant! Nobby was looking behind them too. Oh, shit, he said. Can't miss, muttered Colon, taking aim. Sergeant! Shut up, you two. I can't concentrate when you keep shouting. Sergeant, it's coming! The dragon accelerated. The drunken rooftops of Ankh-Morpork blurred as it passed over, wings sneering at the air. Its neck stretched out straight ahead, the pilot flames of its nostrils streamed behind it, the sound of its flight panned across the sky. Colon's hands shook. The dragon seemed to be aiming at his throat, and it was moving too fast, far too fast. This is it, said Carrot. He glanced towards the hub, in case any gods had forgotten what they were there for, and added, speaking slowly and distinctly, it's a million to one chance, but it might just work. Fire the bloody thing, screamed Nobby. Picking my spot, lads, picking my spot, quavered Colon. 
Don't you worry, lads. I told you this is my lucky arrow. First class arrow, this arrow. Had it since I was a lad. You'd be amazed the things I shot at with this. Don't you worry. He paused as the nightmare bore down on him on wings of terror. Er, uh, Carrot, he said meekly. Yes, Sarge? Did your old granddad ever say what a vulnerable spot looks like? And then the dragon wasn't approaching any more. It was there, passing a few feet overhead, a streaming mosaic of scales and noise filling the entire sky. Colon fired. They watched the arrow rise straight and true. Vimes half ran, half staggered over the damp cobbles, out of breath and out of time. It can't be like this, he thought wildly. The hero always cuts it fine, but he always gets there just in the nick of time. Only the nick of time was probably five minutes ago. And I'm not a hero. I'm out of condition, and I need a drink. And I get a handful of dollars a month without plumes allowance. That's not heroes' pay. Heroes get kingdoms and princesses, and they take regular exercise. And when they smile, the light glints off their teeth. Ting! The bastards. Sweat stung his eyes. The rush of adrenaline that had carried him out of the palace had spent itself and was now exacting its inevitable toll. He stumbled to a halt and grabbed a wall to keep upright while he gasped for air. And thus he saw the figures on the rooftop. Oh, no, he thought. They're not heroes either. What do they think they're playing at? It was a million to one chance. And who was to say that somewhere in the millions of other possible universes it might not have worked? That was the sort of thing that gods really liked. But chance, who sometimes can overrule even the gods, has 999,999 casting votes. In this universe, for example, the arrow bounced off a scale and clattered away into oblivion. Colon stared as the dragon's pointed tail passed overhead. It missed, he mouthed. But it couldn't have missed. He stared red-eyed at the other two. It was a sodding last desperate million of one chance. The dragon twisted its wings, swung its huge bulk around on a pivot of air, and bore down on the roof. Carrot grabbed Nobby around the waist and laid a hand on Colon's shoulder. The sergeant was weeping with rage and frustration. Million to bloody one last desperate bloody chance. Sarge! The dragon flamed. It was a beautifully controlled line of plasma. It went through the roof like butter. It cut through stairways. It crackled into ancient timbers and made them twist like paper. It sliced into pipes. It punched through floor after floor like the fist of an angry god and eventually reached the big copper vat containing a thousand gallons of freshly made mature whiskey-type spirit. It burned into that too. Fortunately, the chances of anyone surviving the ensuing explosion were exactly a million to one. The fireball rose like a... well, rose. A huge orange rose, streaked with yellow. It took the roof with it and wrapped it around the astonished dragon, lifting it high into the air in a boiling cloud of broken timber and bits of piping. The crowd watched in bemusement as the super-hot blast flung it into the sky and barely noticed Vimes as he pushed his way, wheezing and crying through the press of bodies. He shouldered past a row of palace guards and shambled as fast as he could across the flagstones. No one was paying him much attention at the moment. He stopped. It wasn't a rock, because Ark Morpork was on loam. It was just some huge remnant of mortared masonry, probably thousands of years old, from somewhere in the city foundations. Ark Morpork was so old now that what it was built on, by and large, was Ark Morpork. It had been dragged into the centre of the plaza, and Lady Sybil Ramkin had been chained to it. She appeared to be wearing a nighty and huge rubber boots. By the look of her, she had been in a fight, and Vimes felt a momentary pang of sympathy for whoever else had been involved. She gave him a look of pure fury. You! You! He waved the cleaver vaguely. But why you? he began. Captain Vimes, she said sharply, you will oblige me by not waving that thing about, and you will start putting it to its proper use. Vimes wasn't listening. Thirty dollars a month, he muttered. That's what they died for. Thirty dollars. And I docked some from Nobby. I had to, didn't I? I mean, the man could make a melon go rusty. Captain Vimes! He focused on the cleaver. Oh, he said. Yes, right. It was a good steel cleaver, and the chains were elderly and rather rusty iron. He hacked away, raising sparks from the masonry. 
The crowd watched in silence, but several palace guards hurried towards him. "'What the hell do you think you're doing?' said one of them, who didn't have much imagination. "'What the hell do you think you're doing?' Vimes growled, looking up. They stared at him. "'What?' Vimes took another hack at the chains. Several loops tinkled to the ground. "'Right, you've asked for it,' one of the guards began. Vimes' elbow caught him under his ribcage before he collapsed. Vimes' foot kicked savagely at the other one's kneecaps, bringing his chin down ready for another stab with the other elbow. "'Right,' said Vimes absently. He rubbed the elbow. It was sheer agony. He moved the cleaver to his other hand and hammered at the chains again, aware at the back of his mind that more guards were hurrying up. But with that special kind of run that guards had, he knew it well. It was the run that said, "'There's a dozen of us. Let someone else get there first. It said, "'He looks ready to kill. No one's paying me to get killed. Maybe if I run slowly enough he'll get away. No point in spoiling a good day by catching someone.' Lady Ramkin shook herself free. A ragged cheer went up and started to grow in volume. Even in their current state of mind, the people of Ankh-Morpork always appreciated a performance. She grabbed a handful of chain and wrapped it around one pudgy fist. "'Some of those guards don't know how to treat—' she began. "'No time, no time,' said Vimes, grabbing her arm. It was like trying to drag a mountain. The cheering stopped abruptly. There was a sound behind Vimes. It was not particularly a loud noise, it just had a peculiarly nasty carrying quality. It was the click of four sets of talons hitting the flagstones at the same time. Vimes looked around and up. Soot clung to the dragon's hide. A few pieces of charred wood had lodged here and there and were still smouldering. The magnificent bronze scales were streaked with black. It lowered its head until Vimes was a few feet away from its eyes and tried to focus on him. "'Probably not worth running,' Vimes told himself. "'It's not as if I've got the energy, anyway.' He felt Lady Ramkin's hand engulf his. "'Jolly well done,' she said. "'It nearly worked.' Charred and blazing wreckage rained down around the distillery. The pond was a swamp of debris, covered with a coating of ash. Out of it, dripping slime, rose Sergeant Colon. He clawed his way to the bank and pulled himself up, like some sea-dwelling life-form that was anxious to get the whole evolution thing over with in one go. Nobby was already there, spread out like a frog, leaking water. "'Is that you, Nobby?' said Sergeant Colon anxiously. "'It's me, Sergeant.' "'I'm glad about that, Nobby,' said Colon fervently. "'I wish it wasn't me, Sergeant.' Colon tipped the water out of his helmet and then paused. "'What about young Carrot?' he said. Nobby pushed himself up on his elbows, groggily. Dunno, he said. One minute we were on the roof, next minute we was jumping. They both looked at the ashen waters of the pond. I suppose, said Colon slowly, he can swim. Dunno, he never said. Not much to swim in, up in the mountains, when you come to think about it, said Nobby. But perhaps there were limpid blue pools and deep mountain streams, said the sergeant hopefully, and icy tarns and hidden valleys and that, not to mention subterranean lakes. He'd be bound to have learned, in and out of the water all day, I expect. They stared at the greasy grey surface. It was probably that protective, said Nobby. Perhaps it filled with water and dragged him down. Colon nodded gloomily. I'll hold your helmet, said Nobby after a while. But I'm your superior officer. Yes, said Nobby reasonably, but if you get stuck down there, you're going to want your best man up here, ready to rescue you, aren't you? That's reasonable, said Colon eventually. That's a good point. Right then. Drawback is, though, what? I can't swim, Colon said. How did you get out of that, then? Colon shrugged. I'm a natural floater. Their eyes once again turned to the dankness of the pond. Then Colon stared at Nobby. Then Nobby very slowly unbuckled his helmet. "'There isn't someone still in there, is there?' said Carrot behind them. They looked around. He hoiked some mud out of an ear. Behind him the remains of the brewery smouldered. "'I thought I'd better nip out quickly, see what was going on,' he said brightly, pointing to a gate leading out of the yard. It was hanging by one hinge. "'Oh!' said Nobby, weakly. "'Jolly good!' "'There's an alley out there,' said Carrot. "'No dragons in it, are there?' said Colon suspiciously. 
No dragons, no humans, there's no one around, said Carrot impatiently. He drew his sword. Come on, he said. Where to? said Nobby. He'd pulled a damp butt from behind his ear and was looking at it with an expression of deepest sorrow. It was obviously too far gone. He tried to light it anyway. We want to fight the dragon, don't we? said Carrot. Colon shifted uncomfortably. Yes, but aren't we allowed to go home for a change of clothes first? And a nice warm drink, said Nobby. And a meal, said Colon. A nice plate of... You should be ashamed of yourselves, said Carrot. There's a lady in distress and a dragon to fight, and all you can think of is food and drink. Oh, I'm not just thinking about food and drink, said Colon. We could be all that stands between the city and total destruction. Yeah, but... Uh... Nobby began. Carrot drew his sword and waved it over his head. Captain Vimes would have gone, he said, all for one. He glared at them and rushed out of the yard. Colon gave Nobby a sheepish look. Young people today, he said. All for one what, said Nobby. The sergeant sighed. Come on, then. Oh, all right. They staggered out into the alley. It was empty. Where did he go? said Nobby. Carrot stepped out of the shadows, grinning all over his face. Knew I could rely on you, he said. Follow me. Something odd about that boy, said Colon, as they limped after him. He always manages to persuade us to follow him. Have you noticed? All for one what? said Nobby. Something about the voice, I reckon. Yes, but all for one what? The patrician sighed and, carefully marking his place, laid aside his book. To judge from the noise, there seemed to be an awful lot of excitement going on out there. It was highly unlikely any palace guards would be around, which was just as well. The guards were highly trained men, and it would be a shame to waste them. He would need them later on. He padded over to the wall and pushed a small block that looked exactly like all the other small blocks. No other small block, however, would have caused a section of flagstone to grind ponderously aside. There was a carefully chosen assortment of stuff in there, iron rations, spare clothes, several small chests of precious metals and jewels, tools, and there was a key. Never build a dungeon you couldn't get out of. The patrician took the key and strolled over to the door. As the wards of the locks slid back in their well-oiled grooves, he wondered again whether he should have told Vimes about the key. But the man seemed to have got so much satisfaction out of breaking out. It would probably have been positively bad for him to have told him about the key. Anyway, it would have spoiled his view of the world. He needed Vimes and his view of the world. Lord Vetinari swung the door open and silently strode out into the ruins of his palace. They trembled as, for the second time in a couple of minutes, the city rocked. The dragon kennels exploded. The windows blew out. The door left the wall ahead of a great billow of black smoke and sailed into the air, tumbling slowly to plough into the rhododendrons. Something very energetic and hot was happening in that building. More smoke poured out, thick and oily and solid. One of the walls folded in on itself, and then another one toppled sluggishly onto the lawn. Swamp dragons shot determinedly out of the wreckage like champagne corks, wings whirring frantically. Still the smoke unrolled but there was something in there, some point of fierce white light that was gently rising. It disappeared from view as it passed a stricken window, and then with a piece of roof tile still spinning on the top of his head, Errol climbed above his own smoke and ascended into the skies of Ankh-Morpork. The sunlight glinted off his silver scales as he hovered about a hundred feet up, turning slowly, balancing nicely on his own flame. Vimes, awaiting death on the plaza, realised that his mouth was hanging open. He shut it again. There was absolutely no sound in the city now but the noise of Errol's ascent. They can rearrange their own plumbing, Vimes told himself bemusedly, to suit circumstances. He's made it work in reverse. But his thingies, his genes, surely he must have been halfway to it anyway. No wonder the little bugger has got such stubby wings. His body must have known he wasn't going to need them, except to steer. Good grief, I'm watching the first ever dragon to flame backwards. He risked a glance immediately above him. The great dragon was frozen, its enormous bloodshot eyes concentrating on the tiny creature. With a challenging roar of flame and a pummeling of air, the king of Ankh-Morpork rose, all thought of mere humans forgotten. Vimes turned sharply to Lady Ramkin. 
How do they fight? he said urgently. How do dragons fight? I, that is, well, they just flap at each other and blow flame, she said. Swamp dragons, that is. I mean, who's ever seen a noble dragon fight? She patted her nighty. I must take some notes. I've got my memo book somewhere. In your nightshirt? It's amazing how ideas come to one in bed, I've always said. Flames roared into the space where Errol had been, but he wasn't there. The king tried to spin in mid-air. The little dragon circled in an easy series of smoke rings, weaving a cat's cradle in the sky with the huge adversary gyrating helplessly in the middle. More flames, hotter and longer, stabbed at him and missed. The crowd watched in breathless silence. "'Hello, Captain,' said an ingratiating voice. Vimes looked down. A small and stagnant pond, disguised as Nobby, grinned sheepishly up at him. "'I thought you were dead,' he said. "'We're not,' said Nobby. "'Oh, good.' They didn't seem much else to say. What do you reckon on the fight, then? Vimes looked back up. Smoke trails spiralled across the city. I'm afraid it's not going to work, said Lady Ramkin. Oh, hello, Nobby. Afternoon, ma'am, said Nobby, touching what he thought was his forelock. What do you mean it's not going to work, said Vimes. Look at him go. It hasn't hit him yet. Yes, but his flame has touched it several times. It doesn't seem to have any effect. It's not hot enough, I think. Oh, he's dodging well, but he's got to be lucky every time. It has only got to be lucky once. The meaning of this sank in. You mean, said Vimes, all this is just show? He's just doing it to impress? It's not his fault, said Colon, materialising behind them. It's like dogs, isn't it? Doesn't really dawn on the poor little bugger that he's up against a big one. He's just ready for a scrap. Both dragons appeared to realise that the fight was the well-known Clatchian standoff. With another smoke ring and a billow of white flame, they parted and retreated a few hundred yards. The king hovered, flapping its wings quickly. Height, that was the thing. When dragon fought dragon, height was always the thing. Errol balanced on his flame. He seemed to be thinking. Then he nonchalantly kicked his back legs out, as though hovering on your own stomach gases was something dragons had mastered over millions of years, somersaulted and fled. For a moment he was visible as a silver streak, and then he was out over the city walls and gone. A groan followed him. It came from ten thousand throats. Vimes threw up his hands. "'Don't you worry, Gov,' said Nobby quickly. He's, "'He's probably gone to have a drink or something. Maybe it's the end of round one or something.' I mean, he ate our kettle and everything, said Colon uncertainly. He wouldn't just run away after eating a kettle. Stands to reason. Anyone who could eat a kettle wouldn't run away from anything. And my armour polish, said Carrot. It was nearly a whole dollar for the tin. There you are, then, said Colon. It's like I said. Look, said Vimes, as patiently as he could manage. He's a nice dragon. I liked him as much as you. A very nice little chap. But he's just done the sensible thing, for God's sake. He's not going to get burned to bits just to save us. Life just doesn't work like that. You might as well face it. Overhead, the great dragon strutted through the air and flamed a nearby tower. It had won. I've never seen that before, said Lady Ramkin. Dragons normally fight to the death. At last they've bred one who's sensible, said Vimes morosely. Let's be honest. The chances of a dragon the size of Errol beating something that big are a million to one. There was one of those silences you get after one clear, bright note has been struck, and the world pauses. The rank looked at one another. Million to one? asked Carrot nonchalantly. Definitely, said Vimes. Million to one. The rank looked at one another again. Million to one? said Colon. Million to one, agreed Nobby. That's right, said Carrot, million to one. There was another high-toned silence. The members of the rank were wondering who was going to be the first to say it. Sergeant Colon took a deep breath. But it may just work, he said. What are you talking about, snapped Vimes. There's no... Nobby nudged him urgently in the ribs and pointed out across the plains. There was a column of black smoke out there. Vimes squinted. Running ahead of the smoke, speeding over the cabbage fields and closing fast, was a silvery bullet. The great dragon had seen it too. It flamed defiance and climbed for extra height, mashing the air with its enormous wings. Now Errol's flame was visible, so hot as to be almost blue. The landscape rolled away underneath him at an impossible speed, but he was accelerating. 
Ahead of him, the king extended its claws. It was almost grinning. Errol's going to hit it, Vimes thought. God's help us all, it'll be a fireball. Something odd was happening out in the fields. A little way behind Errol, the ground appeared to be ploughing itself up, throwing cabbage stalks into the air. A hedgerow erupted in a shower of sawdust. Errol passed silently over the city walls, nose up, wings folded down to tiny flaps, his body honed to a mere cone with a flame at one end. His opponent blew out a tongue of fire. Vimes watched Errol with a barely noticeable flip of a wing stub roll easily out of its path, and then he was gone, speeding out towards the sea in the same eerie silence. A mist, Nobby began. The air ruptured, an endless thunderclap of noise dragged across the city, smashing tiles, toppling chimneys. In mid-air, the king was picked up, flattened out, and spun like a top in the sonic wash. Vimes, his hands over his own ears, saw the creature flame desperately as it turned and became the centre of a spiral of crazy fire. Magic crackled along its wings. It screamed like a distressed foghorn. Then, shaking its head dazedly, it began to glide in a wide circle. Vimes groaned. It had survived something that tore masonry apart. What did you have to do to beat it? You can't fight it, he thought. You can't burn it. You can't smash it. There's nothing you can do to it. The dragon landed. It wasn't a perfect landing. A perfect landing wouldn't have demolished a row of cottages. It was slow, and it seemed to go on for a long time and rip up a considerable stretch of city. Wings flapping aimlessly, neck waving and spraying random flame, it ploughed on through a debris of beams and thatch. Several fires started up along the trail of destruction. Finally, it came to rest at the end of the furrow, almost invisible under a heap of former architecture. The silence that it left was broken only by the shouts of someone trying to organise yet another bucket chain from the river to douse the fires. Then people started to move. From the air, Ankh-Morpork must have looked like a disturbed anthill, with streams of dark figures flowing towards the wreck of the dragon. Most of them had some kind of weapon. Many of them had spears. Some of them had swords. All of them had one aim in mind. You know what? said Vimes aloud. This is going to be the world's first democratically killed dragon. One bad, one stab. Then you've got to stop them. You can't let them kill it, said Lady Ramkin. Vimes blinked at her. Pardon, he said. It's wounded. Lady, that was the intention, wasn't it? Anyway, it's only stunned, said Vimes. I mean, you can't let them kill it like this, said Lady Ramkin insistently. Poor thing. What do you want to do, then? demanded Vimes, his temper unravelling. Give it a strengthening dose of tar oil and a nice comfy basket in front of the stove. It's butchery. Suits me fine. But it's a dragon. It's just doing what a dragon does. It never would have come here if people had left it alone. Vimes thought, it was about to eat her, and she can still think like this. He hesitated. Perhaps that did give you the right to an opinion. Sergeant Colon sidled up as they glared white-faced at one another and hopped desperately from one squelching foot to another. You better come at once, Captain, he said. It's going to be bloody murder. Vimes waved a hand at him. As far as I'm concerned, he mumbled, avoiding Sybil Ramkin's glare, it's got it coming to it. It's not that, said Colon. It's Carrot. He's arrested the dragon. Vimes paused. What do you mean, arrested, he said. You don't mean what I think you mean, do you? Could be, sir, said Colon uncertainly. Could be. He was up on the rubble like a shot, sir, grabbed it by a wing and said, You're nicked, chummy, sir. Couldn't believe it, sir. Sir, the thing is... Well, the sergeant hopped from one foot to the other. You know you said prisoners weren't to be molested, sir. It was quite a large and heavy roof timber, and it scythed quite slowly through the air, but when it hit people they rolled backwards and stayed hit. Now look, said Carrot, hauling it in and pushing back his helmet. I don't want to have to tell anyone again, right? Vimes shouldered his way through the dense crowd, staring at the bulky figure atop the mound of rubble and dragon. Carrot turned slowly, the roof beam held like a staff. His gaze was like a lighthouse beam. Where it fell, the crowd lowered their weapons and looked merely sullen and uncomfortable. I must warn you, Carrot went on, that interfering with an officer in the execution of his duty is a serious offence, and I shall come down like a ton of bricks on the very next person who throws a stone. A stone bounced off the back of his helmet. There was a barrage of jeers. Let us at it. That's right. We don't want guards ordering us about. 
Quis custodiet custard. Yeah, right. Vimes pulled the sergeant towards him. Go and organise some rope. Lots of rope, as thick as possible. I suppose we can uh, tie its wings together, maybe, and bind up its mouth so it can't flame. Colon peered at him. Are you serious, sir? We're really going to arrest it? Do it. It's been arrested, he thought, as he pushed his way forward. Personally, I would have preferred it to drop in the sea, but it's been arrested and now we've got to deal with it or let it go free. He felt his own feelings about the bloody thing evaporate in the face of the mob. What could you do with it? Give it a fair trial, he thought, and then execute it? Not kill it? That's what heroes do out in the wilderness. You can't think like that in cities. Or rather, you can, but if you're going to, then you might as well burn the whole place down right now and start again. You ought to do it. Well, by the book. That's it. We tried everything else. Now we might as well try and do it by the book. Anyway, he added mentally, that's a city guard up there. We've got to stick together. Nobody else will have anything to do with us. A burly figure in front of him drew back an arm with a half brick in it. Throw that brick and you're a dead man, said Vimes, and then ducked and pushed his way through the press of people while the would-be thrower looked around in amazement. Carrot half raised his club in a threatening gesture as Vimes climbed up the rubble pile. Oh, hello, Captain Vimes, he said, lowering it. I have to report I have arrested this... Yes, I can see, said Vimes. Did you have any suggestions about what we do next? Oh, yes, sir. I have to read it its rights, sir, said Carrot. I mean, apart from that. Not really, sir. Vimes looked at those parts of the dragon still visible under the rubble. How could you kill one of these? You'd have to spend a day at it. A lump of rock ricocheted off his breastplate. Who did that? The voice lashed out like a whip. The crowd went quiet. Sybil Ramkin scrambled up on the wreckage, eyes afire, and glared furiously at the mob. I said, she said, who did that? If the person who did it does not own up, I shall be extremely angry. Shame on you all. She had their full attention. Several people holding stones and things let them drop quietly to the ground. The breeze flapped the remnants of her nightshirt as her ladyship took up a new haranguing position. Here is the gallant Captain Vimes. Oh, gods, said Vimes in a small voice and pulled his helmet down over his eyes and his dauntless men who have taken the trouble to come here today to save your... Vimes gripped Carrot's arm and manoeuvred him down the far side of the heap. You all right, Captain, said the Lance Constable. You've gone all red. Don't you start, snapped Vimes. It's bad enough getting all those leers from Nobby and the Sergeant. To his astonishment, Carrot patted him companionably on the shoulder. I know how it is, he said sympathetically. I had this girl back home. Her name was Minty, and her father... Look, for the last time there is absolutely nothing between... Vimes began. There was a rattle beside them. A small avalanche of plaster and thatch rolled down. The rubble heaved and opened one eye. One big black pupil floating in a bloodshot glow tried to focus on them. We must be mad, said Vimes. Oh, no, sir, said Carrot. There's plenty of precedents. In 1135, a hen was arrested for crowing on Soul Cake Thursday, and during the regime of psychoneurotic Lord Snapcase, a colony of bats was executed for persistent curfew violations. That was in 1401. August, I think. Great days for the law they were, said Carrot dreamily. In 1321, you know, a small cloud was prosecuted for covering the sun during the climax of frenzied Earl Hargath's investiture ceremony. I hope Colon gets a move on with it. Vimes stopped. He had to know. How, he said, what could you do to a cloud? The Earl sentenced it to be stoned to death, said Carrot. Apparently 31 people were killed. He pulled out his notebook and glared at the dragon. Can it hear us, do you think, he said. I suppose so. Well then, Carrot cleared his throat and turned back to the stunned reptile. It is my duty to warn you that you are to be reported for consideration of prosecution on some or all of the following counts, to wit, one, brackets, one, I, 
that on or about the 18th groom last, in a place known as Sweetheart Lane, the Shades, you did unlawfully vent flame in a manner likely to cause grievous bodily harm in contravention of Clause 7 of the Industrial Processes Act 1508, and that, 1, brackets 1, I, I, that on or about 18th groom last, in a place known as Sweetheart Lane, the Shades, you caused or did cause to cause the death of six persons unknown. Vimes wondered how long the rubble would hold the creature down. Several weeks would be necessary if the length of the charge sheet was anything to go by. The crowd went silent. Even Sybil Ramkin was standing in astonishment. "'What's the matter?' said Vimes to the upturned faces. "'Haven't you ever seen a dragon being arrested before?' Sixteen brackets three, I, I, on the night of Groon 24th last, you did flame, or cause to flame, those premises known as the Old Watch House, Ark Morpork, valued at two hundred dollars, and that, sixteen brackets three, I, 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 on the night of Groon 24th last, upon being apprehended by an officer of the watch in the execution of his duty, I think we should hurry up whispered Vimes. It's getting rather restive. Is all this necessary? Well, I believe one can summarise, said Carrot. In exceptional circumstances, according to Bregg's rules for... It may come as a surprise, but these are exceptional circumstances, Carrot, said Vimes, and they're going to be really astonishingly exceptional if Colon doesn't hurry up with that rope. More rubble moved as the dragon strained to get up. There was a thump as a heavy beam was shouldered aside. The crowd began to run for it. It was at this point that Errol came back over the rooftops in a series of minor explosions, leaving a trail of smoke rings. Dipping low, he buzzed the crowd and sent the front rank stumbling backwards. He was also wailing like a foghorn. Vimes grabbed Carrot and stumbled down the heap as the king started to scrabble desperately to get free. "'He's come back for the kill!' he shouted. "'It probably took him all this time just to slow down!' Now Errol was hovering over the fallen dragon and hooting shrilly enough to bust bottles. The great dragon stuck its head up in a cascade of plaster dust. It opened its mouth, but instead of the lance of white fire that Vimes tensed himself to expect, it merely made a noise like a kitten. Admittedly, a kitten shouting into a tin bath at the bottom of a cave, but still a kitten. Broken spars fell aside when the huge creature got unsteadily to its feet. The great wings opened, showering the surrounding streets with dust and bits of thatch. Some of it clanged off the helmet of Sergeant Colon, hurrying back with what looked like a small washing line coiled over his arm. "'You're letting it get up!' Vimes shouted, pushing the sergeant to safety. "'You're not supposed to let it get up, Errol. Don't let it get up!' Lady Ramkin frowned. "'That's not right,' she said. "'They never usually fight like that. The winner usually kills the loser.' "'Right on!' shouted Nobby. "'And then half the time he explodes with the excitement in any case.' "'Look, it's me!' Vimes yelled as Errol hovered unconcernedly over the scene. "'I bought you the fluffy ball, the one with the bell in it. You can't do this to us.' "'No, wait a minute,' said Lady Ramkin, laying a hand on his arm. "'I'm not sure we haven't got hold of the wrong end of the stick here.' The great dragon leapt into the air and brought its wings down with a whump that flattened a few more buildings. The huge head swung around, the bleary eyes caught sight of Vimes. There seemed to be some thought going on inside them. Errol arced across the sky and hovered protectively in front of the captain, facing the thing down. For a moment it looked as though he might be turned into a small flying charcoal biscuit, and then the dragon lowered its gaze in a slightly embarrassed way and started to rise. It climbed in a wide spiral, gathering speed as it did so. Errol went with it, orbiting the huge body like a tug around a liner. It's... it's as though he's fussing over it, said Vimes. "'Add up, the bastard!' shouted Nobby enthusiastically. "'Total, Nobby,' said Colon. "'You mean total?' Vimes felt Lady Ramkin's gaze on the back of his neck. He looked at her expression. Realisation dawned. "'Oh,' he said. Lady Ramkin nodded. "'Really?' said Vimes. "'Yes,' she said. "'I really ought to have thought of it before. "'It was such a hot flame, of course, "'and they're always so much more territorial than the males.' "'Why don't you fight the bastard?' shouted Nobby at the dwindling dragons. "'Bitch, Nobby,' said Vimes quietly. "'Not bastard, bitch. "'Why don't you fight... what?' "'It's a member of the female gender,' explained Lady Ramkin. "'What?' "'We meant that if you tried your favourite kick, Nobby, it wouldn't work,' said Vimes. 
It's a girl, translated Lady Ramkin. But it's sodding enormous, said Nobby. Vimes coughed urgently. Nobby's rodent eyes slid sideways to Sybil Ramkin, who blushed like a sunset. A fine figure of a dragon, I mean, he said quickly. Er, wide uh, egg-bearing hips, said Sergeant Colon anxiously. Statue skew, Nobby added fervently. Shut up, said Vimes. He brushed the dust off the remains of his uniform, adjusted the hang of his breastplate, and set his helmet on squarely. He patted it firmly. This wasn't where it ended, he knew that. This was where it all got started. You men, come with me. Come on, hurry. While everyone's still watching them, he added. But what about the king, said Carrot, or, or queen, or whatever it is now? Vimes stared at the rapidly shrinking shapes. I really don't know, he said. That's up to Errol, I suppose. We've got other things to do. Colon saluted, still fighting for breath. Where are we going, sir? He managed. To the palace. Any of you still got a sword? You can use mine, Captain, said Carrot. He handed it over. Right, said Vimes quietly. He glared at them. Let's go. The rank trailed behind Vimes through the stricken streets. He started to walk faster. The rank started to trot to keep up. Vimes began to trot to keep ahead. The rank broke into a canter. Then, as if on an unspoken word of command, they broke into a run, then into a gallop. People scurried away as they rattled past. Carrot's enormous sandals hammered on the cobbles. Sparks flew up from the scads of Nobby's boots. Colon ran quietly for such a fat man, as fat men often do, face locked in a scowl of concentration. They pounded along the street of cunning artificers, turned into Hogsback Alley, emerged into the street of small gods, and thundered towards the palace. Vimes kept barely in the lead, mind currently empty of everything except the need to run and run. At least nearly everything. But his head buzzed and resonated manically with those of all city guards everywhere, all pavement-pounding meatheads in the multiverse, who had ever, just occasionally, tried to do what was right. Far ahead of them, a handful of palace guards drew their swords, took a second look, thought better of it, darted back inside the wall, and started to close the gates. They clanged together as Vimes arrived. He hesitated, panting for breath, and looked at the massive things. The ones that the dragon had burned had been replaced by gates even more forbidding. From behind them came the sound of bolts sliding back. This was no time for half measures. He was a captain, God's damn it. An officer. Things like this didn't present a problem for an officer. Officers had a tried and tested way of solving problems like this. It was called a sergeant. Sergeant Colon, he snapped, his mind still buzzing with universal policemanhood. Shoot the lock off. The sergeant hesitated. What, sir? With a bow and arrow, sir? I mean, Vimes hesitated, I mean, open these gates. Sir, Colon saluted. He glared at the gates for a moment. Right, he barked. Lance Constable Carrot, one stepper forward, take. Lance Constable Carrot, in a your own time, open these gates. Yes, sir. Carrot stepped forward, saluted, folded an enormous hand into a fist, and rapped gently on the woodwork. Open up, he said, in the name of the law. There was some whispering on the other side of the gates, and eventually a small hatch halfway up the door slid open a fraction, and a voice said, Why? Because if you don't, it will be impeding an officer of the watch in the execution of his duty, which is punishable by a fine of not less than $30, one month's imprisonment, or being remanded in custody for social inquiry reports and half an hour with a red-hot poker, said Carrot. There was some more muffled whispering, the sound of bolts being drawn, and then the gates opened about halfway. There was no one visible on the other side. Vimes put a finger to his lips. He motioned Carrot towards one gate and dragged Nobby and Colon to the other. "'Push,' he whispered. They pushed hard. There was a sudden eruption of pained cursing from behind the woodwork. "'Run!' shouted Colon. "'No!' shouted Vimes. He walked around the gate. Four semi-crushed palace guards glowered at him. "'No,' he said. "'No more running. I want these men arrested.' "'You wouldn't dare,' said one of the men. Vimes peered at him. "'Clarence, isn't it?' he said. "'With a C. Well, Clarence with a C, watch my lips. "'Either you could be charged with aiding and abetting, "'or,' he leaned closer and glanced meaningfully at Carrot, "'with an axe. "'Swivel on that one, doggy bag,' added Nobby, "'jumping from one foot to the other in vicious excitement. "'Clarence's little piggy eyes glared at the looming bulk that was Carrot, "'and then at Vimes's face. 
There was absolutely no mercy there. He appeared to reach a reluctant decision. Jolly good, said Vimes. Lock them in the gatehouse, Sergeant. Colon drew his bow and squared his shoulders. You heard the man, he rasped. One false move and you're... you're... He took a desperate stab at it. You're home economics. Yeah, slam him up in the banger, shouted Nobby. If worms could turn, Nobby was revolving at generating speeds. Doucheballs, he sneered at their retreating backs. Aiding and abetting what, Captain, said Carrot, as the weaponless guards trooped away. You have to aid and abet something. I think in this case it will just be generalised abetting, said Vimes. Persistent and reckless abetment. Yeah, said Nobby. Can't stand abettors, slime breaths. Colon handed Captain Vimes the guardhouse key. It's not very secure in there, Captain, he said. They'll be able to break out eventually. I hope so, said Vimes, because the very first trade we come to, you're going to drop the key down it. Everyone here? Right. Follow me.